Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we pray now by your Holy Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your Holy Word, so that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Why does Matthew include Ruth in his genealogy of Jesus? Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, Ruth is listed as one of only five women listed in this genealogy. And for the women in the room who've had children, you got to think, goodness, why do you keep mentioning all the men? I mean, the women are pretty involved in childbirth. This is a genealogy. Yet it's the husband, the husband, the father, the father, and then all of a sudden there's five women that just pop into this genealogy. And he's doing it for a reason. You see, these five women that show up in Matthew's genealogy as we continue in this walk through the book of Ruth. By the way, you can turn to Ruth chapter 1. We'll be looking at verse 11 in just a moment. But as we continue this journey through Ruth, we have to recognize that Ruth is referenced in the New Testament here in the context of this genealogy, and it's for amazing gospel reasons that she's listed. The five women listed here in Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter one are, not surprisingly, Mary, the mother of Jesus. You think, of course, she's listed. But then what about Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and the wife of Uriah, as it says? I mean, let's be clear when you look at this list of women mentioned. You've got Tamar, who acted like a prostitute to get pregnant from her father-in-law. Yes, that's in the Bible. You have Rahab, who's actually a prostitute from from Jericho. You've got Ruth, who's our pagan Moabite for our purposes today. And then you have the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba, who David had the one-night stand with, Yes, in your Bible as well. See, this is the list of the women here. And Matthew is doing it for a reason. Because what Matthew is demonstrating is that these women who would be looked upon by every other standard as outcasts, as the last people you could expect to be involved in a messianic lineage. He says, behold, look at these unlikely outcasts and how God in his grace used them powerfully for his glory. That's the story we bump into again and again in scripture. Look at Matthew himself, Matthew 9, 9, his own biography of himself that he includes in his own gospel. One day Jesus was walking by and saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax booth and he said, come follow me. Matthew, the Jewish tax collector. Okay, he's a Jew, but he's worse than a foreigner because he's getting rich off the backs of his fellow countrymen through the Roman occupying forces. Matthew includes these women of faith in his genealogy because he says, I'm just like them. An outcast that the world would say, there's nothing God can do there, and yet God will do something amazing through them. And Matthew and Ruth and you and I, we share the same gospel. This is what God is showing us again and again through scripture. And certainly as we look at the second half of Ruth chapter one, 
that God is at work through the most unlikely candidates. See, Ruth chapter one, verse 11, last week we saw how there, this family from Bethlehem had moved to Moab, the last place you'd ever want to live on earth if you're an Israelite. And the husband and the two sons have died in Moab. So all that's left is Naomi, the wife, and her two daughters-in-law. And we read as Naomi's getting ready to leave the daughters-in-law behind and go back to Bethlehem, she says in verse 11, turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they should become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have a hope, even if I had a husband this night and bore sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore wait to marry? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your daughter, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death should part me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And they said, is this Naomi? And she said, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What this second half of this first chapter of Ruth is telling us, and this is the reason Matthew includes Ruth in his genealogy, is declaring the incredible good news that this Moabite becomes a member of the community of faith. This Moabite has become a member, has been offered full membership, but it's even more than membership. This Moabite has become a member and a means of grace for God's purposes in the world. Oh, how I love to tell the gospel. See, first we need to recognize that Ruth is a Moabite. Verse 22, the author wants to make it very clear that we remember just how foreign she is because as they're just about to enter into this next chapter where we're going to see all the exciting developments of what the Lord has been building and forming here, just at the very end, he says, let me remind you, verse 22, that Ruth is a Moabite. And then just in case we missed it, says, who returned from the country of Moab? Moab twice in the same sentence. You need to recognize how much of an outcast this woman is, how much of an unexpected stranger she is. See, being from Moab, Ruth is not just an outcast and a foreigner and an enemy of God. 
because it's enemy of God, God's people. That's what Moab is. But she's also living an oppositional worldview to the worldview of God's people, right? She's a pagan, like all the pagan nations around her. And the result is that this pagan believes something very different about how the world works, like all the other pagan gods. Her pagan god is called Chemosh. And here's how Chemosh and the pagan gods around would work. They're big into sacrifice. You're going to sacrifice lots of things, even human lives and even children for Chemosh, right? All into child sacrifice. Because the whole worldview of the pagan world, Chemosh is saying, the more you give to me, the more I will give to you. The more you do, the more obligated I will be to you. And so it's a quid pro quo pagan worldview. The more you do for God, the more God is obligated to do for you. That's how Chemosh works. And it's completely opposite. It's completely the opposite of the way the God of Israel interacts with his people. And you may say, oh, those poor Moabites. I feel so sorry for them. And in doing so, you're forgetting how much of a Moabite you are. And I am. See, the problem is we are all born in Moab spiritually. Let's be clear. As those who are born into rebellion against God because of original sin, because of the fall in Genesis 3, every one of us are born as enemies of God. That's actually what Romans 5 says, enemies of God. You can look it up, right? We have sinned. We stand in this place of enmity towards God. But it's not just that. Even those of us who have been redeemed, oh, thanks be to Jesus, I was born in Moab as a sinner, but God has redeemed me. We crawl back to Moab on a weekly basis. We continue to live according to Chemosh's way in this world again and again. Because in that quid pro quo, the more I give, the more I do, the more I earn, God will be obligated to me. It's the same thing we will find ourselves uttering. There's no free lunch. You get what you deserve. God helps those who help themselves. I know we don't say that out loud in front of the pastor, but we certainly feel it. And the truth is, sadly, I see this far too often in my own life. And I know I'm not alone. I mean, it's interesting right now with our children all going back to school, Monica and I have two teenage daughters and two adult college-age daughters. So we've got two that have just started high school this week and then two that are heading back to college right now. So we're living in this very weird middle zone of life. And I find in both cases, when I'm spending time with my teenage high schoolers and when I'm spending time with my adult children who are going to college, I'm embarrassed to admit how much our conversation centers around from dad on how I can set you up for success. Have you watched that YouTube study video? Did you get the day timer we ordered? Have you emailed all your professors ahead of time because you really want to be that student that they know before the course even begins and you show you're motivated and have you done this and have you checked in with the financial department? Do you have plans for next summer of what you're going to do to pay for your tuition? Remember, your dad's a pastor. I mean, all of these are the conversations we have. And I'm realizing that the ratio of how much I'm talking about setting them up for success versus how much I'm talking about where are you going to go to church and how are you going to build prayer into your life and how about spiritual centered relationships, how, what's the percentage? It's there, don't get me wrong, we talk about it, but what's the ratio difference? I'm embarrassed to see how much I am teaching them how to live according to Chemosh, how to live according to the Lord. 
We are Moabites. Born there and we crawl back there on a regular basis. And if you don't think you are, then you aren't paying attention to the way you're living. Each and every one of us are Moabites. It's why Luther said on his deathbed, we are beggars all. Because it's true. Redeemed and yet always going to be tempted to go back to the ways of the world. But the good news is that God meets us in Moab again and again. God finds us in Moab and brings us home. This is his nature. This is his character to bring wandering children home again. This is what Ephesians 2 says. When he says, he preached peace to those who are far off and to those who were near. Ruth is a Moabite. She's an outsider. She's living in opposition to God. And yet, this Moabite becomes a member. This Moabite has become a member of the house of Israel, the people of God. Look at verse 16. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. And then she calls him the name of the Lord, the personal name of the Lord God of Israel. This is a conversion story. This Moabite has become effectively an Israelite, full membership in the community of faith. And you got to ask, when, how? how, how did this happen? Well, let's take this, let's bottle it, let's make it a program. We'll, we'll build a whole curriculum around it. We'll call it the Ruth curriculum. We can, we can sell it to everybody. How, how does it happen? I love the fact that the author is silent on how and when. We don't know when, we don't know how. And I think it teaches us something about process and about prayer in conversion. See, he's silent in the sense of process. And I, notice I said process. I've been here long enough, seven years. When I first got here, just before I got here, during the interview sequences, there was a great controversy that emerged because um, not because of my theology, not because of my experience, um, certainly not because of my family, but it was because of my vocabulary or to be specific, how I pronounce things. And I know I still pronounce a few things differently, but I guess during the interview process, I kept saying process, which is the way the queen would say it. And I learned, I said, listen, I'll be a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles. I'll be a Texan to the Texans. And after seven years, I just have process falling out of my mouth, y'all. Isn't it amazing? Praise the Lord. I've forgotten how to speak English. But the point is, process. Praise be to God, process. The process of conversion. See, verse four tells us that it was 10 years that Ruth was living in this house, married to Kilion. 10 years went by. So the question is where in those 10 years, was it right when they got married? Was it during the engagement process she got converted? Was it at the moment? Was it during the marriage? Was it at the moment of her husband's death? Was it in the controversy and the struggle that followed? Where did the conversion happen? And we don't know. And it's wonderful that we don't know because even those of us who have a particular date we can point to and say, that's the date I got converted or those of us who aren't quite sure, for every one of us, it's all a process. It leads up, it's at the time and it's a process that follows. We are constantly in the process of being converted and being frankly reconverted again and again. The gradual nature of conversion is important that we recognize it. And, and it gives us comfort, I think. Depending for you, wherever you are on your own particular faith journey, be comforted knowing it's a process. For Ruth, it's a process. 
for those you love who you're praying that they would come to either a first knowledge or a greater knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, understand, be comforted, it's a process. I always like to look at James as an example. James, the brother of the Lord. So James, the brother of the Lord, this is, this is a guy that grew up in Jesus' own household. Roman Catholics and, and, and Protestants have argued for years about whether, you know, we're talking about biological brothers of Jesus, i.e. Did, did Joseph and Mary have other children after Jesus or were they like adopted in, like Joseph brought kids with him? I didn't see that in the Christmas story. But anyway, the point is that um, th- there's been debates about it, but who cares? What matters really is that James grew up in the same household as Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus being your like older brother? So James grows up in Jesus' household. In Mark chapter four, we're told that Mark chapter three, sorry, we're told that Jesus' brother and mothers came to take hold of him in the midst of his ministry because they thought he was out of his mind. You follow me? His family was like, Jesus, you gotta stop this. This is gonna get you killed. And he's like, exactly. They thought he was out of his mind. James is not listed as one of the 12 disciples. And yet, by Acts chapter 15, James, the brother of Jesus, will be the bishop of Jerusalem. I'm gonna lead the first council of the church. What happened between Mark 3 and Acts 15? Well, a whole lot of process. The Lord worked gradually over time to build this man to a place where he could say, I believe. But also, it's not just that it's a process of conversion. It's also, notice the prayer the prayer that is attached here. Ruth has been prayed for. Her conversion has been prayed for. By who? By Naomi. Yes, it's in the text. Naomi doesn't even know really the prayer she's offered. Because back in chapter one, verse nine, Naomi, as she's getting ready to offload the daughters-in-law, she has this little throwaway statement. She says, the Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of your husband. And what she's saying is, a Moabite husband, like your Israel husband is dead. Go find a Moabite boy. May the Lord grant you rest in that new Moabite household, new Moabite husband. God says, I'll take that prayer. The Lord grant you rest in your husband's household. And here's what he does. I know this is a spoiler alert. I hope you've read the rest of the book, but she's going to find a new husband who is actually in the house of her husband, Kilion. Boaz is a relative of Elimelech's household. The prayer that Naomi just sort of threw away, oh, may the Lord you know, bless you and grant you rest in the house of your husband, it exactly comes true. She thought it was the end of the relationship. For God, he took it as the beginning of the relationship. God takes our prayers and does more than we could even ask or imagine with them. He is the worker. He is the provider. He is the one doing the work over this process through even our imperfect and small prayers at times. You know, I've referenced Justin before. Poor Justin. He always gets brought up in sermons. He'll be forever immortalized. Justin, the kid that was like badly behaved in my youth group when I was a youth pastor years, decades ago. Justin drove me crazy. Justin interrupted me when I was preaching. I'm like, come on, Justin, I've worked hard on this. Justin misbehaved, wrecked every game, just was terrible to be with. And I remember one day finally going to Justin when I was done with him and said, Justin, I am handing you over to the Lord. 
And it was like a chucking kind of motion. Like, I mean, I am throwing you out the window. I'm handing you over to the Lord. And he said, okay. And a year later, after I'd long left, I got a call. They said, would you come back to our church? Because Justin's become a Christian and he wants you to baptize him. And I said, Lord, I didn't think I meant that. The Lord took my imperfect prayer that for me was an ending point. <laughs> I'm handing you over to the Lord. He said, sure, I'll, I'll take him. And you'll have him eternally. That's what God does. He does it with Ruth and he does it with us and he does it with the people around us. But here's the thing. There's more. I like how Hosea 1.10 says, in the place where we said, you are not my people, it shall be said, children of the living God. Like that has come about in Ruth's life. This Moabite has become a member. I mean, we could stop right there, but there's more. Not just a member, a means of grace. That Ruth is now being used as a means of grace for God's purposes in the world. And we see it in a tiny little word. When in verse 14, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law, leaves, and Ruth clings to her. Ruth clings to Naomi. And in doing so, in Ruth clinging to this very bitter woman, Ruth is preaching the gospel to Naomi. Because Ruth is acting in that moment like God would act. I mean, Naomi's bitter, let's be clear, right? Verse 20, 21, you know, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, she says. You know, I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity on me. I mean, this woman is mad. And she says, don't even call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Ms. Bitter. And even despite Naomi, Mara's rejection of God, her bitterness, her anger, even her rejection of her daughter's in law, you notice this is kind of like a swift way of like, just get out of my life, girls. I got enough to handle. What is the response from Ruth? She clings to this bitter woman because that's what God does with us in our bitterness, in our rejection of him, in our waywardness. What does God do? God comes close and clings to us. This is not the God of Chemosh. This is our God who doesn't receive us because we've done something for him. No, the very opposite. When we have done nothing for him, he comes amongst us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Didn't look down on humanity and say, oh, well, they're doing pretty good you know, this month. I guess, we, I guess the incarnation can happen now. If anything, he looked down and said, they're worse than they've ever been. And yet God comes amongst us to cling to us, to die for us, because that's what God does. You know, what's interesting about calling Ruth a means of grace is that she's actually modeling the character of God. That is, as Luther says, that when we are joined to Christ, in union with Christ, that the gift is that we suddenly enter into a freedom to become more and more like Christ, that we start sharing his character. When she says the name of the Lord, the Lord, the personal name of God, she's not just saying, oh, I know how to call him now. No, she's talking about his character. I know his character. 
And you're seeing his character reflected in her living. She's not just a member, she's a means of grace. And you know, we talk about means of grace, especially in the context of the Reformation. They, they love to talk about means of grace. And in other words, ways that God shows and communicates his grace to the world. And the reformers were big on the word and sacraments as means of grace, right? The word of God, it's opened. That's God communicating his grace to the world. The sacraments, baptism and communion, means of grace, communicating God's grace in the world. But there is a third very essential means of grace in this world. Not just the word, not just the sacraments, but there is the people of God as a means of grace. You and I in our communities, in our homes, in our small groups, in our workplaces, in our schools, we become a means of grace as we live out more and more the character of our God as we cling to people who don't deserve to be clinged to, as we commit to people in a way that God would commit to his people, as we live out the ethics and character of our God, so we become a means of grace, a sign, an aroma, a fragrance of Christ in this hurting world. Sometimes in our lives, we're gonna be Naomi's. We're going to be going through a really difficult, awful season. And the question is, do we see the roofs around us that God has provided as means of grace to cling to us? Do we see the roofs? But we're also called to be Ruth. We're called to come alongside the Naomi's in our lives and cling to them and be a means of grace. And here's the thing, friends, and I close with this. We are never going to fully in this life see the full impact of us living like Ruth, of us seeking to cling to those around us, being means of grace. We're not gonna see it. You, even if you try to imagine it, you're not gonna see the full impact of your life. You won't see it till you get to heaven. Then you'll see it. Because the impact is beyond anything we could imagine. We can't see the future. We can't see the impact and the networking of relationships in our lives. And I close with this that my I've mentioned it once before in a sermon, you might know the name, but there's a young man named Jay Watts. And, and Jay was a young believer, a, a pagan just like Ruth, came out of a total atheistic home. Jay was converted. How did Jay get converted? We don't know. It was a process. It was through a lot of prayer, I guess. But he got converted miraculously. He was a member of the household of God. And then he began living out his Christian life. And he only lived a year as a Christian before he died. He was 17 years old when he died. And honestly, when you take a look at his life, you think there's probably only one recognizable conversion that you can actually attribute to Jay's ministry. One person who he led to Christ, and that person's me. He led me to Christ. He was the guy that was on me for a year to come to church prayed for me, was patient with me, clung to me when I was rejecting him and his God. And it came to pass that as a means of grace, he led me to Christ. And then he died. And and you could say, that's it. Isn't that sad? Like, you know, Christian, one life. Every sermon I have preached, every baptism I have performed, every counseling appointment I have had in the last 20 years, Jay will one day stand in glory and say, that's part of me being a means of grace in this world. Do you see it? You do not know the impact that your living will have as a means of grace in this world. 
Then we will see clearly. Now we see through a glass darkly. Then we shall see in full. Now we only see in part. This Moabite, like you and me, Ruth, she becomes a member of God's household and a means of grace that will transform the world. Not just transform Naomi's life, not just transform Bethlehem's life, but will in fact influence the rest of human history and salvation history as she stands in line of one of the mothers and grandmothers in the line of Jesus. She has no idea what it means in verse 22 when it says she came to Bethlehem at the start of the barley harvest. This is why Matthew includes her in the genealogy. Because her inclusion in the genealogy along with Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and even Mary demonstrates the gospel. God is at work. God takes Moabites and doesn't just make us members, but means of grace that will change the world. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.